You guys may know, like, that person that's a friend of yours or a family member, and whenever they talk to you, they start crying. And you're like, oh, here we go again, crying again. Well, Adrian's not that person. But Adrian does cry a lot. But when Adrian cries, like, she cries from a place of, like, her heart being broken for wanting to see God do more in her own life and in the lives of her friends and in the lives of those that she loves. So really when Adrian cries, like, you start crying with her. Like, no, I'm so, so happy. But today we want to bring up our friend Adrian who um, just, just really pursues Christ and is a dear friend of ours. So, amen. So I've been asked to share my testimony. Um, and... Like everyone who shares their testimony, you kind of want to tell everything you've ever done or ever wanted to do. And so, just a reminder, this is just a theme song, what God, the theme that God has done in my life um, that I wanted to share with you today. So, um, as I read some scripture and then open up into my story, just notice how this parable is woven through my testimony. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed along the path. The one who received the seed that fell in the rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop, yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. I grew up in a small town in the mountains of Arizona where my dad was a pastor of a Lutheran church. At six years old, we moved to Minnesota, and I started kindergarten, and my mom began her bachelor's degree in women's studies. After a couple years, my mom encouraged us to move back to Arizona, to a suburb of Phoenix. Once we got there, she said she would be returning to Minnesota to finish her degree. I'm not sure exactly why my dad agreed to this or what her original intention was, but shortly after, a divorce was finalized. I never saw my parents fight, and the news of the divorce was devastating. I later learned that my mom had initiated the divorce because she was a lesbian. After the divorce, my dad remarried a woman I never liked. During this time, I believed there was a God who cared about me, but I didn't know much about him. My mom lived in Minnesota and did her thing while I lived with my dad until high school. My mother's choice to leave my dad and I left me feeling abandoned. I missed her every day that we were apart. About seven years later, she moved to Oregon with her partner, Pam. My freshman year of high school, um, during my freshman year of high school, and after much consideration, I, I decided to move in. So my freshman year, I gave a speech to the whole class to become a class officer, and there was a girl in the stands um, who began praying for me because God told her to. Her name is Cindy. Six months later, I made the cheerleading team, and she was on it. God had provided her a way to pursue me. She became my mentor throughout high school. I believed in God and thought he may or may not care about me, but it didn't really matter because we were all going to go to heaven anyway. 
She prayed for me out loud even when I didn't believe in prayer. God used her in more ways than I have time to describe during this testimonial time. While living with my mom, I was able to forgive her for the pain she had caused, and our relationship became much better. However, my junior year, she chose to take a job in St. Paul, Minnesota. Once again, I felt abandoned and alone. I moved back in with my dad and his family. At this time, Cindy invited me to her church's outreach camp. We went down to California for a week to go to various amusement parks. Each evening, we had a teaching and worship. The speaker, Darren Prince, a missionary to the homeless in San Francisco, um, was very encouraging. One night he spoke about how people are going to disappoint us, hurt us even, but that we have a God who will never leave us nor forsake us, a God who genuinely loves us. It was then that the gospel became something I wanted to hear and believe. Cindy found me from across the room sobbing, and we prayed. She had been faithfully pursuing me for three years. Fast forward to college. I was involved in ministries and Bible studies and this and that. It was a Christian university and easy to become over-involved. Spring of my sophomore year, I went on a trip to Cuba to study art and political science. I was already struggling with my relationship with the Lord. In Cuba, I saw extreme poverty, injustice, and pain. It was there I officially declared God a false. How could there be such pain and suffering when I believed in a God who was good, loving, and kind. Incidentally, this is the trip where I met David, and we went off the deep end together. We pursued worldly things. After a year of dating, we decided to get married. I'll never forget Cindy's question. Dree, what if one of you decides to believe in God again? Are you sure you want to get married right now? Cindy, we're never going to believe in God, so it's not an issue. Well... God began softening our hearts to him in different ways over a period of time. By the time our wedding day came, we had scripture, two hymns, and were to be married in a church. We moved to Tucson and became part of a church that poured into us and really helped our walks in healthy ways. It was here that God began growing my roots in his truth. I began to believe in a God who cared deeply for his people. So then God brought us to Michigan and eventually to Mac Ave, which we've shared a lot about. And it's been such a blessing to be here. And he's taught me a lot here. And I wanted to share some of the things that Macav has really equipped me with. To not fear this world, but to trust in him, which is essential if you're going to live in the hood. I used to be terrified of the dark of night, and God in his power has enabled me to trust in him and not fear. To give back to the church and not just take, take, take. To be part of an intentional community where we challenge one another in love, which is very difficult to do. To live, to live an outreach-focused life, I'd rather just live rightly and have others ask me why. God has given me a heart for the down and out. Obviously, Jesus modeled this heart in great ways. And whether we stay at MacAv or go somewhere else, this place is a huge part of God's teaching me how to care about the down and out, not just physically, but spirit, spiritually. And one of my favorite scriptures that has given me the ability to trust in his goodness comes from Isaiah. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in his distress, shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall, and like the heat of the desert, you silence the uproar of foreigners. 
As heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this day, on this mountain, he will, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that, that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from the earth. The Lord has spoken. So that's, I guess that kind of explains itself. So thanks for letting me share. Amen? Amen. We are um, excited that you guys are here to worship with us this morning. We never want to get tired of hearing one another's story because it's, it's really an example of God's redemption, how he takes our lives and takes, transforms us into who he wants us to be. Uh, we also always want to work that muscle out, being able to share with others the great things he's done in our lives. So uh, thank you, Dree. We really appreciate it. Um, today we are going to be looking at John 19. So we are uh, a Bible-equipping church. We want you to understand the scriptures. So if you do not have a Bible, please raise your hand, and one of the gentlemen in the back will bring a Bible to you. Uh, we want you to be able to follow along with us. Uh, if you need a pen, raise your hand. We can get you pens because on the back of your bulletin is a uh, um, blank sheet of paper where you can write things down. So uh, if you need anything, thank you, Dave. The homies will, uh, will bring it to you. We're going to be looking at the book of John, chapter 19. We're continuing in our series. And uh, let me let everybody get their stuff. All right, would you guys pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this day, for uh, a testimony about you. And we pray that as we focus on your word that you would calm all the noise, all of the uh, things that we want to do when we get home, the hot dogs and ribs waiting and everything else, Lord. Let us, for a moment, give you our undivided attention. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So some of you have uh, a grandmother or um, a person that you care for deeply in your life, and you know them but over time, you get to hear about an experience that they've had, like, like um, my grandmother. Uh, she once told me that she marched, in a, in a, she marched with some other people uh, in a civil rights movement. It's like, wow, grandma, you know, you know grandma is the one that, you know, makes your peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you know? Or your, your aunt that was maybe, or, or great-grandparent that was maybe one of the first immigrants for your family lineage coming here. Um, the, the, those experiences at times can shed light on the individual and you see them in a whole new aspect, in a whole new regard. Today, when we look at the book of John, I want us, I'm going to give away my whole point. I want us to be able to worship God with more passion after we recognize what he endured for us. This week we're going to be looking at John 19 and next week John 19. 
um, leading up to the crucifixion is what we'll be talking about today. But when we see some of the things he endures for our sake, my hope and prayer for you is that you would really worship the Lord uh, with a thankfulness um, that, that flows out of understanding what he sacrificed for us. So if you could turn to John 19 and we'll read together. And it says, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. We have Pilate here um, taking him and having him flogged. And a flogging was, was a, a, a leather whip, if you will, that has three straps on it. And at the end of those straps is a metal hook. So as it hits you, it catches your flesh and rips it off. And this was part of the Roman process of helping a person die once they're crucified. I mean, if you just punch a person and hang them on the cross, they're going to be hanging for a while. But if you flog them... If you beat them, people died even before getting to the cross after enduring the flogging. So why does he have them? Why does he have them flogged? Why does Pilate have Jesus flogged? What, what, what did he do? Nothing. He does it. He flogs him to appease the Jews. You see, if we look back in, in, in chapter 18 um, and verse 29... Pilate asks them the question. He says, what charges are you bringing against this man? And notice the next verse. They say, if he were a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Do they actually say what the charges are? There are no charges. Jesus is innocent. But that doesn't matter to them. And Pilate's trying to get some clarity. He's trying to say, hey, what, what did he do that you want me to kill him? What, what, what did he do? But unfortunately, even in, even in understanding that he did nothing to appease the Jews who are extremely angry at him at this point, he has Jesus flogged, whipped, flesh being torn from him. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said, Here is the man. Here is the man. That that, that phrase, here is the man, is just like saying, This dude? the, The guy just put a crown of thorns on. The one I dressed up in a purple robe. This guy is the guy that's supposed to be a king? Come on, Jews, are you serious? Like he, he's, really, he's really ridiculing Jesus and saying, why are we even wasting our time and energy? He's not a king. But there's irony in it here, because actually they did everything that typical Roman guards would do to a king. I mean, they crown him. They dress him in an expensive garb which is set aside only for royalty. They even hail him. But then they demean him by punching him, humiliating him, spitting on him. And all in sight is Jesus' goal 
of bringing glory to the Father. Why, why is he enduring such pain? So that the Father may be glorified. And he's doing it for you. He's doing it for me. As soon as the chief priest and the other officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Again, Pilate's trying to say, he is not guilty. Okay, I beat him. I put the crown on him. His face is mutilated from these thorns piercing his face. What more do you want me to do? Kill him. Crucify him. How does Jesus respond to this beating, to this crowning of of pain and agony, to the adornment of of a purple robe? He says nothing. Nothing. He doesn't try to defend himself. He's not sitting here trying to, trying to help them see where they're, they're flawed in the law. We've been looking at the book of John for some time. Every argument where Jesus says truth, they reject it. So now that you're beating me, it's not the time for me to convince you. You've already made up your mind. Your, your, your passion, your desire, your main goal is to see me die. And, and, and for those of us who are the historians, like, like there are non-Christian historians during this age that document these different happenings taking place. So if you sometimes are like, well, the Bible, I don't know, like this is, this is documented the, the Bible is historical itself, so I'd love to talk to you about that. But also, there are a number of witnesses that testify to this. That an innocent man was beaten, and, and, and he didn't defend himself. Pilate attempts to stand for what is right. Even the world knows that if an innocent man isn't charged... He should be set free. It's, it's, it's clear as day. There's, there's, he, what has he done? Well, we'll see, we'll see what he's done next. The Jews insisted, we have a law. Now, according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. The son of God. This theme that you guys have been hearing throughout the book of John. What, is, what does that mean? What does the Son of God mean? Well, first, it means that he's always existed. He is the eternal Son of the eternal Father. Jesus didn't have a starting point in Nazareth. He is God. Therefore, he's always been and always will be. But to the Jews, they're listening to him say this, and for them, that's one more check mark on their list of blasphemy. Oh, you claim to have always existed like God? Kill him. One of the second things, Christ has has his existence eternally in the Father. So you won't find Jesus trying to do his own thing separate from who God is because he and the Father are one. So you have Jesus always existing, being one with the Father, 
And lastly, um, yeah, uh, his, his existence is in the Father. So even as he talks about his purpose, his purpose is defined in the will of the Father. He's not trying to, to, to be his own separate God. It's a beautiful example, again, of the Trinity, of the love that he has in showing us who the Father is and bringing glory to the Father. And lastly, the plainly stated, the Son and the Father are one. They perform the same works, possess the same attributes, and Jesus claims equal honor with the Father. That, in the mind of the Jew, was grounds for death. No, no, no other reason, no negotiation, no need to talk. You've blasphemed God in their eyes, and that is punished by death only. Not a flogging pilot, not a beating. Do whatever you want to, and until he dies, we will not cease. It says in Matthew 11:27, "All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. One with the Father. One with the Father. Again, in Leviticus, that's where they're drawing the reason or the, the, the desire to bring death to him. They, they try to use the law, um, but actually they're using it in an improper manner, which is uh, even in this, well, we'll continue on. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Now, the, the fear that comes from Pilate at this point, we don't know if it's, um, we know it's not a fear that came from the Jews. It's a fear that came, that was associated with Jesus. And there's two kind of guesses right now. One guess is that during that time, uh, they believed often in many gods. This is a Greek man, a Roman man, who uh, believes in a number of gods. So in doing so, they believed that at times gods and humans hooked up and reproduced and made little demigods. So he's saying there could be a chance that this dude could literally be the son of a god. That's, that's one view. The other view is that Jesus not defending himself may have had an impact on this man that brought, that brought fear um, into his heart. Could you imagine every time you go to kill someone or beat someone, they're going to cry out, please spare me. Jesus says nothing. It's quiet. So we don't know exactly what stirred this fear up in him, but we do know that a fear arose. And he goes back and says, where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? You would have no power, Jesus says. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Pilate believed that his influence, his authority, his power can guide the fate of Jesus. But we, we know that's wrong, right? We, we know 
that, that this is a plan that God has designed. But we also know that Pilate, Pilate had, he had free will. Pilate could have made a choice, right? Pilate could have said, you know what? Instead of, instead of um, flogging Jesus, I'm going to let him go. Y'all do it. Y'all, y'all have to work that out. But, the, but, the, but, but he believes that he has the power and the authority to kind of teeter-totter between two worlds. If I can just appease the Jews enough and beat them, but also not kill them, then maybe I can get the best of both worlds. And that's one of the things that we really have to be, we have to be cautious of. Walking that line of trying to please Jesus and trying to please the Lord. There is no line, friends. There is no line. You either choose Jesus fully or you choose the world fully. Your arms will be torn apart if you try to walk with both. I, 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 um, I was uh, kicking it with Russ the other day, and um, this guy came, and he helps us bring some wood over to the house or whatever, and the Lord says to me, he's like, Leon, you need to share your faith with this brother. Now, I'm looking at my schedule, and I got like 15 things to do, five of them for the Lord, and I'm like, Lord, I already started late. You, you sure you want me to talk to this brother? Yep, go do it. So what do I do? I try to invite them to church. Sad. Is, is inviting a person to church sharing your faith? Not at all. Not at all. But I knew my heart at that moment, and my, that, my heart at that moment was, all right, Jesus, I'm going to do a little something. I'm going to say a little something about church so I can maybe pacify you, and I won't reject it totally, trying, trying to trying to navigate between both of these worlds where God's saying, I don't care about your schedule. I make the schedule. This brother needs to hear about me. And it, 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 it so I don't, I don't even know what I said. It sounded so crazy. I wouldn't even have wanted to come to church. You know what I'm saying? It was just, it was just, it, but I wasn't pursuing, I wasn't truly saying, Lord, my power, my authority, all of this I place to the side for your glory. And Pilate had that same option. And we have that same option daily. Jesus rejects this man for ascribing divine power to himself. This is the first time since he was beaten that he actually starts speaking. And you notice, he doesn't speak to defend himself. You know, he's not, he's not saying, hey, Stop beating me, or hey, you guys are getting it wrong. He speaks when the wrong responsibility is attributed to the Father. This guy is attributing the Father's power to himself. And God says, No. <laughs> you got it all twisted, brother. You, what? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. It was interesting that, uh, and, and next week when we talk, we're going to look at a number of the prophecies that Jesus fulfills. But in the book of Isaiah, it just speaks clearly that, that this would be one of the markers for the Messiah. That when, that when 
his accusers came before him, he wouldn't try to defend himself. He would be silent. We'll see a number of the... Um, there's so many ways that he fulfills uh, prophecy. You, you will be blown away. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. So Pilate tries to cater to both worlds. We talked about this. But it's, it's interesting because what, he, what he's giving up here and not being a friend of Caesar is his stature, it's his, his um, uh, notoriety, it's his influence, right? And, 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 <laughs> and I know, I'll speak for myself, you ever go into a store, right, or you're in a situation where you're talking with somebody and they're, they're working there, they're an attendant or something, and you realize they can't help you. You're like, all right, well, let me speak to a manager. And then that person is the manager. <laughs> Maybe it's only happened to me. You know, but you start, you start thinking, oh, okay, let me just talk to somebody who's really in charge. Let me flex a little bit of my authority. Would we be willing to set all authority, all power, all influence aside for the Lord to be glorified in our lives. I, wanna, I want to, to, to challenge us in this because um, it, it is a, it's a daily fight for us to keep our minds focused on Christ in a manner where we die to self and put our influence aside. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, hey, you got a network of friends and you guys are doing some things and Jesus is being, you know, glorified through it. That's awesome. But we all know when you can do two things, where you do the same thing in two different ways, with the right heart and with the wrong heart. And this brother's, this brother's desire was not to lose his stature, not to lose his influence, and definitely, definitely not to lose his reign over the people. And that's really what this is coming down to. See, the world understands, pick a king. It's either going to be Caesar and, and his henchman Pilate or Jesus. We have to pick a king. And in picking a king, we will serve, submit, give our total allegiance to that person. But it's a daily fight. It's a daily fight to not be wooed, attracted to the Caesar characteristics. Starting to do a little better at work. Everybody patting you on the back. I am the man. You know what I mean? You, you start thinking a little bit yourself. You're better than you are. You know, you do something nice for your family and everybody loves you. And you're like, that's what I deserve. No, no, no. Let us, let us be a people who constantly are going before the Lord saying, yeah, it, it, it looks attractive, Lord, but not, I'm, I'm serving one king. I'm serving one king. 
But they shout, take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar. The chief priest answered, finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Now, what did, what, what, what did the Jews accuse Jesus of? And I'm, I'm not being for, like rhetorical. I actually want somebody to answer. What did they accuse Jesus of? What? Come on now. Blasphemy, right? What, is, what, what does this look like? This is the true blasphemy. They're choosing a worldly king over God. It's not the first time we've seen it. It's, it's, it's a theme that, that takes place, unfortunately, throughout the Bible. And the reference is, um, Nelson, hit that reference for me. Isaiah 26, 13, and it says, Our Lord, O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone do we honor. You know, that was, their, that was their heart's cry, how far away they've gone. Now we see where the true blasphemy is happening. And, and, and what I want us to leave with today is a picture of Jesus and all that he did for us, all that he endured for us. Not simply just the physical piece, because the physical piece was devastating. I mean, not only are you being beaten, there's humiliation. You're standing in front of all of the crowd with your face mutilated, exhausted. That's why we'll see that he can't even carry his cross. He's been beaten so badly. All of this with an end goal in mind bringing the Father glory and making God known to man. Was Caesar a worthy substitute for God? Not at all. Not at all. We have to be cautious, though, that we don't just look at them and ridicule them and say, (laughs) oh, look how easy it was for them to put Caesar in God's place. Because there are some things that tempt us to remove God and put ourselves there or put other things there. Pilate's choice was to embrace the world over Jesus. Will you make that same choice? I pray not. If you're a person who's not a believer in Jesus Christ and you're here today, What we have to offer you is a choice that's better than the world. A choice that's better than a king or anything that you're worshiping that's not God. It's true freedom in Christ. That that which he endured, that beating which actually happened, was for you. It was for me. You do not have to leave here with the same understanding. You have pastors and people in our church body when if you would like to learn more of how to say yes, of how to, to make a choice different than that of Pilate, then please see one of our body members. 
And just, you don't even have to have a long sentence. Just say, I want to make a different choice. And we will walk with you through that. For the, for, for the body, it's, it's always refreshing because my question is in the present tense. It's not, did you make that choice? But will you make that choice? Because every day it's a choice that we have to fight. Every day it's a choice that we have to continue to say, Lord, you've sanctified me, recreated me, but I want to bring you glory in my decisions today. But for the believer also, uh, let Jesus' choice to endure humiliation and torture on our behalf affect our worship. Recognizing all that he went through should give us a, a greater understanding of his grace. That, wow, the Lord knew, knew what we needed, allow his son to endure it for, our, for his own sake and bringing him glory and for our sake. That we might be restored, we might be able to be in the body of Christ. Let that influence, let that affect, let that give us more passion in the way we worship the Lord. So, friends, what we're going to do is um, we're going to take tithe at this moment. And uh, the gentleman will be coming down. And uh, basically, fam, we're a church body, believers who take this time seriously as a time of worship. So if right now you're still coming to understand um, what it means to worship God through giving, um, we would just ask that you allow the, the plate to pass you by. Um, but if you do see this as an act of worship, well, we encourage you to give. Um, the, the two guys will go down, and then we'll have a song, um, and then we will have our uh, we will leave and go downstairs. Uh, let me pray for our time of tithing.